let's continue worship with reading from 2 Peter 1, 2 through 6. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Carolyn. Good morning. Man, I'm, I'm Scott, one of the pastors here on Stanford Riverstone. It's great to be with you this morning. I uh, wanted to, first of all, just talk about what a great day last Sunday was with the chili cook-off. Good job, everybody. Uh, Rosemary Peacock, right down here, helped really put this whole thing together. And uh, thank you, Rosemary and Mike and everyone else and all you guys that cooked and slaved. I have to dispel a rumor. Actually, just to tell you it's true. Um, my, my chili did come from Wendy's. Uh, I just took the crock pot over there and said, fill it up, and they did. They just delightfully did that. And, uh, and so you're wondering, okay, how many of us, what would you have done if you won, Scott? Well, I've, I would have forfeited it, obviously. But uh, guess how many votes Chili got from Wendy's? I guess. guess. One. Yeah. There, it, it, who was that? One person that voted for Chili. It wasn't, you know, somebody else out here. I didn't even vote for it. So, uh, but that was a lot of fun. Josh was our real winner. And uh, I'm, actually, everybody who ate was the real winner on that. But uh, and the kids had fun. It was, a great, it was a great day all the way around. And Chris and I both would like to thank you for uh, the Pastor's Appreciation Day, the very generous gift, the cards. Uh, you just made us feel very loved. And uh, we love you guys, and we appreciate you so very much. So thanks for a great day. Um, so this morning, uh, I want to kind of jump in to really um, continuing what we've been talking about. Over the past month, we've been talking about how we're formed by the gospel. And we, we've spent some time just taking a big, broad look at the entirety of Scripture and how God weaves the story of redemption throughout Scripture. Uh, we've looked at the gospel story kind of in its entirety. We've witnessed it from what I would call a bird's eye view. And we've asked not just the question of how does the gospel inform us and give us um, some answers and some knowledge, but how is it actually forming in our life? And the good news, the gospel, which means good news, the good news about it is that it radically transforms our life and everything about our life. We become new creations, as Chris talked about last week. The old is passing away. All things become new. I mean, how else do you explain that other than a revolution? Radical from death to life. It is absolutely radical. So what we began with was in the beginning, in Genesis, and we went all the way to Revelation. We didn't cover every verse, but we, we did the flyover. And we looked at the beginning in Genesis, how God created all that we have in his created genius. He created the world. He created us, and he says, it's good. 
And he placed us here in, in this wonderful, wonderful place in fellowship with him, absolutely blessed in a way in the Garden of Eden that, that blows our imagination. And rather than being just completely satisfied and saying, man, our cup is over, overflowing, Adam and Eve felt like we've been cheated. God's holding out on us. He's holding back that one tree. And so they sit out on their own to take things in their hands, to kind of set up their own rules, decide for their, themselves what's right and wrong. And the result... It's what we call the fall, the rebellion against God. And what that did was open a Pandora's box of pain, of suffering, of evil, and of selfishness that has been eating away and destroying the souls of men and women for the entirety of, of human history. And not only that, damaging the creation itself. Tragically, we, we, we begin a trajectory of moving away from God and living apart from him, the benevolent creator. So Chris discussed that the second week. The third week, we looked at the story of redemption throughout Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, and Josh led us through that, how God did not give up on us, but he, he began to pursue a master plan of redemption. We see the prophets, the priests, the kings, everything that's all pointing toward the coming of the Messiah who will come and to release us from the grip of sin. And two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus who comes to take away the sin of the world, resolving the, 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 the problem, the dilemma of how would God destroy sin without destroying us, the sin holders. And the scripture is clear. God hates sin, but he hates what it does to us. He hates it that we weren't created to, to live in sin, and so it is toxic. It is deadly to us. It creates separation, death, pain, so many different things. And it must be destroyed because God is holy. So how would he destroy sin without destroying us? How would he crush sin without crushing us? Because we each are terminally infected with sin. So Duck sat down with one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the Bible, John 3.16, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we saw in scriptures how Jesus takes upon himself on the cross all of our sin and all the curse of sin. He who was sinless became sin on the cross. The scripture puts it this way, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then last week, Chris pointed us to the glorious future, the revelation of Jesus in the future, and the restoration of all things. I think that that was my favorite. Uh, just trying to wrap my little brain around what that's going to be like uh, is, just stretches me. Uh, I like to try to imagine just the, the, the God coming back and radically eliminating everything that takes place that eats away at our soul and restoring all things. God taking back everything that the enemy has stolen. Dallas Willard said, uh, talking about that, that God restores all things that have been broken as if it never happened. Whew. Sit with that. Sit with it. That's the restoration of all things. I heard a song by Will Reagan and the United Pursuit Band this week called Take Back. And in the lyrics in that, he says, we're going to take back all that the enemy has stolen by the blood of the one who is worthy. He goes on and says, we're going to plunder the gates of hell. 
And I tell you what, that just that says it so well. Um, Chris and I, during the week, we talked about the series, and we both had a strong sense of it's not quite over yet, because we've looked at the gospel from beginning to end from 30,000 feet up. We've gotten a great bird's eye view, but today what I want to do is come down to ground level. What I'd like to do is talk where the rubber meets the road, where our feet hit the path. And I want to ask a very important question. I think it's really critical that we ask this. If we are formed by the gospel, how's it going? I mean, I think we have to just pause and ask ourselves that question. How is it going? And by asking that, I know that when we stopped, it creates some tension, which is probably not a bad thing. And it's not, it's not designed to create a false guilt or a shame, but honest examination honestly looking at our life and all the different components of our life and saying, am I, or ask, am I being formed by the gospel? How so? What areas do I see movement in my life being changed, being formed by the gospel? What areas do I need to work on? If the gospel is the power of God, as Paul describes it, how can I actually have it form my life? And hopefully, as we've listened to these messages, and the guys did a fab fabulous job with, with each one of them, we need to be asking ourselves that and looking at it, because obviously God's intention is not that we're just spectators of the story, not that we're just back and say, wow, that's a good story. I mean, look at all the things that took place, and look at all that God did. I really appreciate that. No, rather, it is to allow what he did and what he is doing to infiltrate into every area of our life and have tremendous impact upon us and change us, transform us. N.T. Wright, the great scholar, said uh, he, he describes what I would call the three expressions or the three dimensions of salvation. And, and they are this, just kind of in summary, to, to kind of tell you what I'm going to tell you in just a second. First of all, there's past. There's a past dimension of salvation where we came to, if you have in this journey, maybe you're here today and you said, well, I haven't come to that place of, place of putting my faith in Christ yet. You're on that journey to that point. But many can look back and say, there was a time when I came to, fa to faith in Christ. I, I was honest about myself and my need for him. There was repentance as I turned to him. And then faith in him, placing and leaning completely upon his work on the cross for my salvation. For me, that was March 1972. A little ways back, quite a ways back. I was a senior in high school. And even though I was brought up in church, uh, it had just been head knowledge. It had been spectator. It had been watching. And it had never really sunk into my heart that I was lost, that I needed Christ, and that I needed to come to him and place my faith in him. When I did, there was transformation in my life. I went from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, just like you did. I was born again. I was saved. It was a past event that took place. But it doesn't stop there. Because salvation is just the doorway we enter into to begin a lifelong or an eternity-long journey with Christ or belonging to him and being in fellowship with him. So there is that past dimension of salvation. Secondly, there's a present dimension of salvation. What's happening right now in our life? Through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is at work now. He is at work within us. The Bible says we're being saved. So there's still some redemptive work. It's not that we're lost, uh, but that there's still redemptive work taking place in the areas of our life. Then there's a future dimension. What will happen in the future, the day that Jesus returns and finishes wiping out the enemy and restores all things? 
These three realities, these three dimensions form us and everything about us. The past work changes our identity, who we are, our nature. The present work engages us with God on a daily basis, the grand adventure, the great adventure, the greatest adventure of being changed in the image of Jesus, how we live. And the future dimension changes our destiny, where we're headed and what we were designed for. I read this from uh, an author, I think it was R.C. Sproul, said, we never get past the gospel. What saved us in the past when we were still in our sins, fallen sons of Adam by nature, was the grace of God in the gospel. Nowhere is it put more clearly than in Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one can boast. But the New Testament also speaks about our salvation in the present tense. We are being saved, as in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there is a future tense. We shall be saved. There is only one salvation and only one way of salvation, But what occurred in the past works itself out in the present and comes to consummation in the future. So with our time remaining this morning, I want us to look at these three dimensions, the past, the present, and future, dimension of salvation, ask how is that working out in our life, how am I being formed by that, and what are the keys of my part of cooperating with that and receiving all of that. So let's begin first, the past dimension of salvation, that point where we came to Christ, where we experienced him, and it changed our identity. We were born again. We were transformed. We became new creations. And the Bible is very, very clear. As you read the New Testament, it powerfully describes a complete change, a revolutionary change of who we are when we become a Christian. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 6, it, it describes, and listen to the, the comparisons of what takes place and how we're described. You And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. A lot of comparisons from dead to alive, from darkness to light, to now being seated with Christ basically orphaned to now being a part of the family of God. And the Bible, if you begin to read the New Testament, it makes a bunch of very radical statements about who we are now that almost seem uh, other earthly. We're described as being holy, as being loved, accepted, forgiven, new, righteous, and even saints. You know, you're, you're called a saint according to the scripture we're given a brand new identity. It's, it's like getting new papers. It's like getting a new passport. You, you know, when you go down to the DMV to get that license, well, don't we all look forward to that photo day, you know? I mean, those, 
those guys must go to a very, very special school to learn how to take photographs that bad. Oh, my goodness. I hope you don't do that for a living. But I've just never, never gotten a good one. And imagine if you went down there and you got your picture made and they handed you your license and you looked at it and you said, that's great. That's, that brings out all of my two good features. I mean, that is just, wow. This is my identity. This is who I am. Yeah, man, I'll, I'll be happily show you my license rather than hide it and put our thumb over the picture like we normally do. Well, God gives us new papers. He gives us a new identity. And what he does with a snapshot in the New Testament of who we are is he shows all that we are in him. The finished work, the transformed work, it's a beautiful picture because it's us as God desires and created us to be. And I know we hear this and we go, okay, Scott, I know, I know, I know. I'm a new creation and, you know, I get it, I get it. But here's the deal. There is a drastic difference between knowing something and believing something. And many times we as Christians will equate what we know with what we believe. And the two are not the same. I know in my mind that Jesus loves me. It's nothing new. But do I believe it and therefore act like it, therefore feel like it? When there's a contradiction between my behavior and what I say I believe, my actions, my feelings, I must really truly believe something else. And this hits every one of us all the time. It's a gut check. It's a reality check. It's why we, we meet together and encourage one another is to, to bring us into this place of walking out our beliefs and, and being aligned with them. I love the story about Martin Luther King, the great civil rights leader. When he was going through a very difficult time, he got depressed. He just kind of sulked around the house. He's moping around, and he would just sit in his chair in the living room and just, just sit there. And one day as he sat in his chair, his wife, Coretta, came walking down the stairs, dressed to the hilt in all black, wearing what she wore to funerals. And he looked up and he says, what's going on? What are you doing? Who died? And she replied, I assume God had died the way you're moping around. <laughs> I think he got the point. That his beliefs, that what he believed were not lining up with his actions, and he needed a faith check. When we believe something, really believe it, it impacts the way we live. It, we, our actions change. Our behavior is not based upon just knowledge. It's based upon belief. An old preacher I used to know said, we practice every day what we really believe. All the rest is just religious talk. And I think, yep, he's right about that. So what I want to talk about with this is how do we appropriate this into our life? How do we allow our past experience of being saved change us? And the key to this is what I call the power of agreement, where we actually internally agree with what God says versus what the world may say, what my feelings may say, what my mind may say, or what the enemy likes to say. When we hear something or we think something, it goes through our mind, we either agree with it or we disagree with it. 
And what we agree with, what we give mental assent to, yields a powerful, tremendous force in our life. When Satan comes along, he likes to just whisper in our, our ear some thought. And you've, you've heard him. I've got, I've got my list you know, of things that he'll say to me. And maybe you too. He'll say, you're a loser. No one loves you. You'll never amount to anything. You don't have what it takes. Everybody else has got it together, but you don't. And when we hear those thoughts, when we process those thoughts, we do something with those thoughts. We either embrace them and agree and go, you know, that may be true about me, or we don't. We either think, well, maybe those are just my thoughts. Maybe those are just coming from me, self-thoughts, negative self-talk. Or maybe we think, you know, this is what everybody's told me, so it must be true. This is what some authority figure told me in my life, so it must be true. And we agree with them, and if we do, those thoughts take us down. Or we reject them as lies and we place our attention upon truth. And by the way, in case, in case you haven't caught on to this, it took me a while to get this. But your mind will lie to you. <laughs> yeah. And emotions, our emotions will lie to us. They really will. So we've got to think about those and examine those and, and line them up with something that is truth. When the enemy throws these kind of thoughts at us, which Paul called them fiery darts or fiery missiles. Um, and it, it gets us to agree with them and we absorb them. What happens is it becomes our reality, whether it's true or not, because we've agreed with it. We live out of that. It's like this. If, if I go up here into Buford and the train comes through and it's going slow enough for me to jump on it and I get on board that train, that train is headed somewhere. And once I get on board, I'm going with it no matter where it's going. It may not be where I want to end up. So it is with thoughts. When these negative thoughts, when the enemy throws thoughts or accusations or whatever it may be condemning you, uh, he throws those things at us. If we jump on those thoughts, they're going to take us somewhere. And it may not be where we really want to go. And sometimes we end up way off track and we go, how in the world did I get here? And if that happens in your life, go back and look at the thoughts, the agreements that were made in your life with something that was not true. Jesus told us Satan is a liar. He's the father of liars. He is called the accuser of the brethren. And I'm assuming that includes the sister in two. Uh, he, he just loves to accuse us. He loves to hurl those things. His main tool against us are lies. Jesus is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Every one of us are living in a battlefield between truth and lies. We battle with truth and lies every day, and what we agree with becomes our reality. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power, watch this, to destroy strongholds. Well, what are those strongholds? Those are thoughts. Those are agreements that we formed. And you may have some agreements that, that, you, that were formed many, many years ago about who you are, about your identity, about your worth. And those have built into your life to become a stronghold. And what God is saying is that he releases divine power to destroy those strongholds. 
He says, we're destroying arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. This is not just knowing about God, knowing God, knowing what he said, but experiencing it and believing it. And he goes on and says, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, to line up with what God says, that's truth. Now, the enemy has been working on all of us to establish strongholds in our mind. But Jesus is also working right now to destroy those strongholds and to build something holy and righteous in our mind. We have to carefully examine the battle going on in our mind and carefully examine and ask, who am I agreeing with? When a negative thought, some self-condemning, berating thought comes into your mind, freeze, stop right there and say, Where is this coming from? Is this truth? Does this line up with what God says, or is this something worldly or something even demonic? Am I agreeing with the enemy's attack? You aren't loved. You're a failure. You have no talents. You're a bad mom. You're flawed. You're a mistake. Or with God's declarations about you that says, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. You are loved. That he has given you gifts and abilities for his glory. That you have been made holy and righteous by his work within you. His work within you. Purchased and given as a gift. And when we look at the things that he has said about us, we're able to say, because of God's grace, because of his saving work in me right now, I am holy. I am righteous. These are positional truths that have to be walked out in a practical way. By the way, the word confess in the Greek, it simply means to say the same thing, to say with, to agree with. When we confess sin, that's what we're doing. We're agreeing with God and saying, yes, this was sin. Yes, I did this. Yes, this was wrong. I agree with you, Lord, on this. But we can also confess and agree with God about what he says about us as new creations. We can align up with him You and I are forming agreements every day and every moment. There's a whole lot going on up there, and we're being transformed by him. So the big question from this first point is, who are you agreeing with when those thoughts come into your mind? Let's be real. We all have those negative self-talk things going on up there. There's a lot going on up there. And many times we just don't examine it. We just accept it. We just let it float by. We go, "What, what difference does that make? makes a big difference. As we think, so we become. We allow the Lord to work into our lives. Think about this. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, he did not enter into a theological discussion with Satan about it. He didn't say, well, let's talk about this. Let me, let me, you know. No, 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 no. He didn't do that. He didn't form an agreement with the enemy. He simply confronted the lie with the truth, with the word of God, with scriptures. He just simply, I don't agree with you. I agree with the Father. Check, check, make, it's over. I'm not even going to debate this. I'm not even going to discuss this. I'm not even going to entertain this. We're not even going to have a big discussion about this. God says this. The word is this. And he intentionally blocks the enemy's move and bombs it with God's scripture, with God's word. We have to stop and think about our thinking and ask, who am I agreeing with? And test it. Is this from God? Who am I agreeing with? What does the word say? What does the Bible say? So our salvation begins at a point. It's a past event. And that past event gives you a new identity. 
The key, discover and agree with your new identity, what God says about you. The Bible says two cannot walk together unless they are agreed. So we agree with the Lord and we walk with him, which brings me to the second major point here, the present dimension of salvation, the present dimension. When Jesus finished his earthly mission, the scripture says that he ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he says, man, it's done. He had fulfilled the mission of redemption, the assignment of atonement. That mission had been accomplished, but that wasn't the end of his work. He didn't say, okay, I'm done. You know, that's a wrap. You guys now, you take it. Good luck with that. No, he promised in Scripture that he would always be with us, that he would never leave us, never forsake us. And now through the Holy Spirit, he is at work within us right here, right now, this very moment. And he loves you so much. The point that is made here is that Jesus was making in John chapter 4 is that the Father is always at work. And he says, and I am always at work. He is working right now up to this day. And so we have to to recognize, I mean, look around, examine your life and ask this question. Right now, what is God doing? He's at work right now. Jesus said, I'm always working. What is he doing? Recognize what he's doing, agree with what he's doing, and join him in what he is doing. Paul would write to his friends in Philippi. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as You have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now so much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I don't know. It may puzzle that. What do you mean work out my my salvation? I thought it was done. And and it it is in the sense that we're not working for our salvation, but we're, we're working out our salvation. We're working it into all the areas of our life. We're, work, we're working it through our entire being. We're taking something that has happened, and now we're working it into and throughout all the different areas of our life so that it produces within us the fruit of salvation. It shows up. So we welcome the light of God's presence as it penetrates into our life, and it's applied to every area of your life. If you were to to draw just a a circle, a pie, and and just kind of let spokes come off from the center of that, you have different areas of your life. Some are very big, your financial life, your family life, uh, your career life, your hobbies, your thought life, uh, your sex life. I mean, all those are part of your life as a human being. And you look at those different things, and the question is, how has the work of Christ, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, penetrated into those areas of my life and brought transformation? Because salvation, although our identity changes, we get the new ID, it's like a beachhead in our life where God begins to now let salvation, the fruit of salvation, show up. That's called sanctification is the the big term, which means we're being changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's a process. It is a journey, not only of of, of belonging to him, but now starting to look like him, now beginning to have his attitude and his mind and his fruit and the fruit of the Spirit show up in our relationships and our thought life and all the different areas that we have. And that doesn't mean that we become like religious nutjobs. You know, some kind of wackos. It just means naturally, yet supernaturally, we let the Lord penetrate our life and show up in all the different areas. Another word that's used for this throughout the New Testament is very simply walk. The term walk is used. We allow the gospel to form us in the present 
through our walk with Christ, which is a process of simple steps that we learned when we were a kid. We stumbled, we fell, we got back up, and we continue to learn to walk. And so the Lord applies that in the New Testament. If you take your concordance, you begin to, that's the thing in the back of your Bible that lists all the different words, and you look up walk, and you begin to go through, you see it show up over and over and over again. We're to walk in newness of life, walk by faith, walk by the Spirit, walk in love, walk in wisdom, walk bearing fruit, walk out of love. And then Colossians 2, 6 says, Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus as the Lord, so walk in him. Just as we came to faith in Christ and, and we trusted him for salvation, to belong to him, he says, continue that. Walk that out. The same kind of faith in, into the different areas. Lord, I'm trusting you with this area. We turn to him. I love the term walk because it's something I can relate to. It's something that I do and you do every day. Some of you even count the walks, the steps that you make during the day. and You, you make a lot of steps, a lot of steps. Some of those are baby steps. Sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we fall. But the question is, do I get up? Do I keep walking? And if I do, why? I do because of the ID card, because of who God says I am now. And his word is truth. And he is working to bring that about. I like to think about Peter's experience of walking on the water. It kind of came to my mind when I was preparing this. And uh, it's a great story. You know, it really happened. It's not just some old story. And Peter, he, you know, he sees Jesus out there and he goes, man, if it's you, if that's really you, bid me come to you. And the Lord says, come on, come on, come on out here. And so Peter, he steps out. Now, what does he step out onto? Did the water simply become ice? No. Was there a board leading to Jesus? No. He steps out on the promise. He steps out on the word, the invitation. And that's what he stepped out upon on, in faith. And he begins to walk out to be with Jesus. And he gets out there, and I just, my imagination goes, wow, what did he do? I mean, first of all, wow, this is awesome. He's looking at Jesus. He's looking down at his feet. I think he's cocky. So I think he looks at the guys, and he goes, you know, he may, maybe start moonwalking, you know, watch this, man, this is cool. And you guys are in the boat. But the scripture says that he, he looked at the waves, the big old crashing waves, and in his mind, an agreement got formed. And he says, what am I doing? I can't, I can't do this. And immediately he sank. Now, here's what I like to, I like to get into the story and think, what did Jesus do? What were the expressions on his face? What was the expression on Peter's face, the disciples' face when this, I mean, boom, he's gone. You know, and they go, oh, man, there's fish. You know, he's, he's gone. And those waves are big. And Peter's face, he just, he's in shock. And, you know, what did Jesus do? Did he make him swim back on his own? Did he say, hey, dude, I got you out here. You blew it. Good luck. You're on your own now. Swim back. You know, no. Did Jesus reach down and just grab his, his hand and just kind of drag him back to the boat, let his head bob along, you know, like a little buoy, you know, heading back to the boat? No. It says, and immediately, I love this. What happens when we fall? What happens when we stumble? What happens when we get tired? What happens when we get tripped up? And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, Oh, little faithling, why did you doubt? Now, faithling, that's my translation for Star Wars people who know what younglings are. Um, it's Jesus' little nickname saying, You have little faith. Oh, little faithling. Why did you doubt? You know? And Peter walked back to the boat 
And I imagine arm in arm with Jesus, you know, all the way, he's there locked in with him. He got to walk with Jesus. He got to get saved again out there with Jesus. Jesus saved him and rescued him. Do you know what Jesus is doing today? He's saving us every day. He's rescuing us every day. I think Jesus is very, very busy. I know. I keep him busy. How about you? You know, He's busy saving us, saving us from ourselves, saving us from bad attitudes, saving us from getting on that negative train chain, you know, and heading down the road, saving us from being selfish or saving us from pride and self-righteousness, saving us from empty distractions. We walk around with this, this bowl in life saying, fill this bowl, fill this bowl. Will something fill this hole in my life up? And we walk around and all these things, nothing can fill it. Nothing except Jesus. And he saves us from that, says, come here. He saves us from luring temptations. He saves us from arrogant pride. He's at work. He's presently at work right now, saving us. And he doesn't quit. I love what uh, Paul wrote in Philippians 1, verse 6. He goes, for I am confident, I'm sure, I know this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, he'll complete it, see it through until the day of Christ Jesus. I find great encouragement in the fact that God is never going to give up, never going to give up, never going to quit reaching the goal that he has for us. He's not going to discard us, walk away and say, well, you've had 3,495 attempts to get this right and you've, you've, you haven't done it. So, you know, it's over. No, he says he's committed to see us through. He's committed all the way. We get off track, he's committed to bringing us back. We get tired, he's committing to giving us his power. He's with us, both by his power and his spirit. So this is a good place just to pause for a minute. Just stop, hit the pause button and reflect. How is God at work saving you every day? Just look at the past week. How did God save you last week? Can you see it? Can you see the activity of the Lord? And maybe he made the attempt and we didn't cooperate. But he was at work wanting to save us, wanting to, to bring us into what David called the paths of righteousness, the right paths, the holy paths, the good paths. How can I continue to cooperate and work with what he is doing? How can I walk that out? Maybe it's baby steps, and that's okay. Never despise the days of small beginnings, Scripture says. Maybe it's starting some new spiritual exercise that has been neglected or never attempted. How was your walk with God? Here's a question. How was your walk with God interrupted last week? Mm. Did, did you stumble? Did you fall? Did you get tripped up? You know, it's not all self-choices. Sometimes the enemy just knows how to trip us up or who to use to trip us up. Well, here's the question then. Did you get back up and continue to walk with the Lord because he is committed he will never quit. He will never give up. He says, get back up. Let's go. Let's keep walking. Because this is who you are. This is who I've made you to become. This is who I'm committed to seeing you complete the journey on. And I will not ever walk away. I will not ever quit. There's one more dimension that is a part of our salvation. It's not just the past that gives us our identity. 
and the present by which we walk out with Christ. But there's the future dimension of salvation, which gives us the power of hope, the power of hope. And, and this is the already and the not yet part of the gospel. We know it's coming. God has begun, Jesus has begun the process of bringing his kingdom, but it's not yet fully consummated. It's not yet completely done, but it will be. And there'll be a day when Jesus comes back and he rescues us from this world and he completely defeats and throws Satan into the dungeon and we are saved eternally with him. We're saved from this world. We're saved from the attacks of the enemy and it is done. And that day is coming. And in that day, as we talked about last week, the Lord will restore all things as if the bad stuff didn't even happen. We call that in scripture the blessed hope. And it comes from Titus chapter 2, verse 13, that uh, we are awaiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have this hope. We have this hope. Hope is like faith in that it sees beyond the present. In fact, I think hope fuels faith, for faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And, you know, the truth is, right now, life can be, Fill in the blank. It can be hard. It can be brutal. I mean, we've been through a couple of really, really hard years as a world, you know, with all the COVID stuff going on, with all the political unrest, with all the other things of living in these days. And, and it can be very brutal. The scripture consi consistently places before us in these hard times a blessed hope to look ahead, to give us strength, to give us hope. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That's that present work of the Lord. For our light, and I catch this, for our light and momentarily troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, I don't know what you think about that verse. It's a great verse, great promise, but I know that we, kind of, we tend to kind of go through that and say, light and momentary? It doesn't really feel light. It doesn't really feel momentary, does it? I mean, it feels heavy, and it feels like this will never end. It, it's like, you know, young parents who have two or three or four kids, and they're in diapers and formula. And so you're up to your eyebrows in poopy diapers and busy routines and sleepless nights. And you're thinking, this will never end. We're just so tired. If I could just sleep one night through. And if we ever get beyond diapers, it's going to be like getting a raise. It's going, oh, will it ever, ever end? And you know what happens then? Then it does pass and the kids get older. And then one day you look at your husband, your wife, and you say, you know, Man, those were great days. The kids were so sweet back then. <laughs> you know, maybe we should have another baby, you know? Oh, dagger eyes. Woo, what's going on there? I mean, you, Scott, you said you were almost done. You're done now. You, you know. <laughs> now, something about being away from it at that time when you look back and we just see the beauty, the glory of it. It is wonderful. Well, there are things in our life that are much more difficult than poopy diapers, as bad as that can be. There are things that are very, very, very painful. There is suffering that is real. There is evil in the world. There is an enemy that hates us. 
There is a war going on, and it's a real war, cosmic battle that we are in the midst of. We're born into this, this battle. And it doesn't always feel like it's momentarily. But he says, so fix your eyes on what is unseen. Let the eyes of your heart, the imagination that the Lord gave us, begin to picture what he describes in Revelation we talked about last week. Meditate on it, savor it, reflect upon it. Begin to put your eyes upon those things that are eternal, that will last forever and ever and ever. The average person lives about 29,000 days or 700,000 hours. And suddenly it doesn't sound so long, does it? I mean, it sounds rather brief. I tried to Google how many hours eternity, eternity is, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't get much help from Google or Siri or Alexa. The I, I, only thing I came up with is eternity is a really, really long time, and eternity is also a cologne. And that was about the best that they could <laughs> do with that. But what God says in this verse, look at it. He says, eternal glory. The eternal glory of the Lord himself, of being with him, far outweighs all the suffering, all the pain, all the evil. For those will end, but his glory will never end. I'm still trying to wrap my, my head around that. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. I guess that's a good exercise, isn't it? So where I want to wrap up with this today is with a challenge and with an encouragement. And the challenge is this. Let the fullness of the gospel, the power of the gospel, form you. For it will. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto our salvation. So let it form you. Hebrews says, don't neglect such great a salvation. It is indeed great. Let it cement your identity. Get into the word. Frame up something that is strong that you can hold on to when the assaults come. Something you'll be able to shoot down the lies of the enemy. And when he hurls these things that you say, no, that's a lie. Or it comes from your mind. Just stop and you go, ah, you're lying to me. This is what the Lord says. Check your agreements. Check your agreements. What are you forming agreements with? Realign them. Maybe get into the word. Maybe that's part of the, the walking out that we need to journey into as we wrap up this year and move into another one is really just dig in, chew on the word of God, allow it to speak to us and form within us something that can hold up against the assaults of the enemy that we experience in these battles. So there is past agreement of who we are. There is present walking it out in the practical, tactical, and there's future hope. And you're on a journey. And the important thing to know is that each step of our journey takes you somewhere. And like those questions we used to ask our parents, Dad, are we there yet? And Dad would say, no, we're not there yet. The father would say that too. We're not there yet but I am working, and I am committed to work within you. So let's sit with us for a few minutes and just kind of prepare our hearts. We like to come to the communion table at this time of our, our service each week.
And uh, so I want to invite you to do that.